Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the Inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tavenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Massini's guest is the latest virtual presenter in the current Hagen Center for the Humanities Speaker Series, Dr. Anu Taranath. I'll talk with Neil Schindler, co-chair of the Spokane Jewish Cultural Film Festival that begins next week. Dan Webster reviews a much-written-about new film and, in a nostalgic mode, will play from a special Eastern Washington University recording celebrating the turn of the century. 21st century, that is. This is Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is Dr. Anu Taranath. She is a professor at the University of Washington, where she teaches on global literature, identity, race, and equity. She is the author of the book Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World, as well as a consultant for schools, colleges, libraries, community organizations, and government agencies on social justice and global issues. On Wednesday, March 3rd, Dr. Taranath will be hosting a virtual event as part of Spokane Community College's Hagen Center for the Humanities speaker series, Diversity Dialogues, Conversations About Race and Equity, for which Spokane Public Radio is a media partner. The title of her talk is Tangled, Why Your Hair Matters to Society. Anu Taranath, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thanks for having me. So you've approached the subjects of race and identity from a lot of different angles in your work. What is it about hair that interests you in particular? Race and identity are some of those topics that are so important, but we're also not sure how to talk about it. With family, in our communities, and society, we usually don't talk about these issues very well. And I'm always thinking about ways where we can come together as a community and grapple with some of these hard topics uh, in in some different angles, in a different way. Hair is one of those uh, ways that actually helps us think about big issues like beauty, bias, and belonging. Um, And through this presentation, I'm inviting audience members to think about these big ideas from something that seems kind of more innocuous. You know, we don't usually think about hair Uh, as being a big symbol of all kinds of social issues, and yet hair is a symbol of all kinds of social issues, especially when you start looking at it through history, when you look at it through art, when you look at it through activism, and that's what my presentation uh, is hoping to do. You also consult with many different types of organizations on social justice, so I think one area where hair has historically 
been an issue is in workplaces. So what advice do you give to employers when it comes to, you know, policies around what they call professional appearance or appropriate workplace attire? You know, those very concepts itself have everything to do with our norms of race and gender and class. Um, The way that hair sprouts from our head naturally, why is that even an issue, right, for our workplaces? There's a whole lot of pushback against so-called professional norms because professional norms are not simply neutral. They are often reinforcing the understanding that perhaps white people's hair is better, seemingly more natural. Other people's hair has to ascribe to what white people's hair looks like, how it behaves. We're not quite sure what to do with difference. Right. And so, you know, our conversations about hair are not actually about hair itself. They're really about difference. What do we do with difference? How do we hold difference as a society better than we do now? And what does it mean to create more spaces of belonging for more of us? You know, just because your hair looks different than mine, why, why should that matter? And the fact that it does matter in our society speaks volumes to how our society is organized, right? I'm talking with Dr. Anu Taranath. She is a professor at the University of Washington and the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Diversity Dialogues series. You've also written a book about travel called Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. And, you know, I think that one reason why people love traveling is because it gives them a different perspective of the world or helps them experience different cultures. And obviously, we haven't really been able to do that for the last year or so. At least most of us are are sort of stuck at home and international travel is, is extremely limited. So do you have suggestions, particularly now when we can't travel to sort of gain that new perspective on what we can do from home or, you know, with engaging in books or or anything else that we can do to sort of gain that perspective? Well, this year has been unprecedented for a range of reasons, right? I mean, certainly the pandemic, the slowing down or shutdown of many industries, the differential health impacts in our communities, as well as, you know, the wide range of racial uprisings and conversations about longstanding racism in our communities and what that means. And so what I am seeing around the country is in this moment of pause, there are so many more opportunities for people to reflect on their lives, on their business as usual, uh, ways of being. Most of us are not traveling outside of our homes, but this year's pause from the so-called regular life that we might have been accustomed to before covid Um, has really brought to bear the very real differences in our experiences. And that, once you start seeing that, it's really hard to unsee it. So we might not be getting on planes as often as we were, but many of us are having to think about lives that are unlike ours this year in some really focused, concerted, and thoughtful ways. And of course, these are conversations that we had before this year, but I have seen a deepening and a more intentional focusing on some of the things that make life different for different people. 
And here's the thing, Chris, right? You and I did not create the world that we live in. I didn't create the inequality. You didn't create the inequality. And yet we are living in the world so differently based on who we are. And that reality is becoming more clear, I think. It has become more clear this year for more of us. People who are well-intentioned and care about issues of equity and justice and making life better for more of us are starting to pay more attention, are wanting more tools and skills to deepen their own practice and to have better conversations with one another. That's what I'm seeing. My guest has been Dr. Anu Taranath. She is a professor at the University of Washington and the next speaker in Spokane Community College's Hagen Center for the Humanities series, Diversity Dialogues, Conversations About Race and Equity. Her event will be live-streamed Wednesday, March 3rd. You can find more information at our website, spokanepublicradio.org. Anu, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Chris. Our guest today is Neil Schindler, who is the director of Spokane Area Jewish Family Services and co-chair of the Spokane Jewish Cultural Film Festival, this year being held between the 3rd and the 12th of March. So welcome, Neil. Thank you very much, Jim. Appreciate being here. For those who are unaware of the festival, could you give us a quick tour Absolutely. So uh, this year is the 17th annual, and uh, we've been uh, going since mid-2000s. The idea is really to bring an assortment of films that express what the Jewish experience, what Jewish life and tradition and culture are like, not just here or in Israel, but all over the world, and um, to also highlight moments in Jewish history that might be significant and really this is a festival that may have started out as by and for the Jewish community, but our emphasis now is just as much to reach beyond our own community and bring viewers from all walks of life to see the films because I think it's a really accessible way of better understanding what it means to be Jewish and what it has meant over time. And typically, where do the films come from? Anyone who programs a Jewish film festival finds a lot of uh, possibilities from the U.S. and Israel. But really, over the years, we've looked at films from Mexico. This year, we're featuring a film from Norway and one from Hungary. Even a few years ago, a film that was mostly focused on characters from the Philippines who had immigrated to Israel. So we really try to bring a global feel to this festival because, surprisingly, in many ways, there are Jewish communities and populations all over the world, even in places like Ireland, where you would associate the country with Catholicism. But there are indeed Jewish communities there, too. Really, it's hard to find a place on earth where there isn't some kind of Jewish experience and Jewish stories to tell. The kinds of films that, again, are typically part of the festival, are there like documentary and fiction films we try to really achieve a good balance. Um, we've found over the years that not everyone is a fan of documentaries per se, and so we, we want to make sure we're giving outstanding documentaries a chance to be included, but we also want to feature plenty of narrative films, fiction films, and we certainly have that this time around. As far as the feature films go, 
we have two that are documentaries and five that are narrative or fiction, and then we have additionally two short documentary films. And before we say what you are doing this year, which I'm sure is different from all other yes. years to date, what have typically been the venues for the festivals? Right. Good question. Well, as far as I understand, this goes back before my time, but I believe the festival started out in the auditorium of the Gonzaga um, Law School. And that was in large part because one of the festival's chief uh, boosters and advocates on the board was at the time a professor in the law school. But since then, we migrated over to the Magic Lantern Theater where we were for several years. That was our venue. And then for a variety of reasons, one of which was simply capacity, we ended up moving over to the Hemmingson Center in Gonzaga University. Uh, we were in the basement auditorium. And that certainly offered more capacity, but there were still some audiovisual things that we wanted to kind of improve on. So finally, our last move, um, before we had to go virtual this year, our last move was to the Wolf Auditorium, which is housed in the Jepson Center, the business school at Gonzaga. And we have found in the two years we've had the festival there so far, the audiovisual quality is just fantastic, good capacity for the auditorium, and it's just a nice building to find your way around. Hemmingson is an amazing structure, but it is really big. And we had a lot of folks getting lost there, even the second year we were there. So that's where we are for the moment. Gonzaga has been a great host. But of course, this year we had to go virtual, and that's where we are. All right. Well, let's uh, dive right into that. So uh, tell us about this year's festival, the what's on, and how it's accessed. I'll say briefly, before we made the decision to organize a virtual film festival. I spoke with other Jewish film festival directors uh, in various places in the country who were considering the same, and that helped to inform my thinking and that of our board. As far as how the festival works, all of the films are stored or housed, if you will, in a screening platform called Eventive, and there are many of them out there that we happen to choose Eventive. So that is where people can buy tickets and watch the films. It's all in one online place. And um, it's also where live filmmaker Q&As and other live programming kind of around the films, post-film discussions, that sort of thing, they all live there too. The idea is that each film has a window of time in which it can be viewed. So for example, on day one, the film Crescendo has its debut or premiere and becomes available. And then the next day, another film becomes available. And each of those two films can be viewed for 72 hours from when it first becomes available. And that way, we kind of have the excitement of you know, each day a new film, but at the same time, we also give people flexibility and convenience in terms of not having to be online at a very particular point to see each of the films. So it's kind of a staggered start setup. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the films that can be seen? The opening film is Crescendo, and it is based on a true story of the uh, composer and uh, conductor Daniel Barenboim, and his East Western Divan Orchestra, which incorporated both Israeli and Palestinian youth and youth from other Arab countries and Levantine countries, to make an orchestra that is still active to this day and is quite renowned. But this documents sort of a fictionalized version of that orchestra and shows how it came together. 
And um, as you might expect, it's not all uh, easy. Uh, there are definitely some tensions, particularly in the film between uh, Israeli and Palestinian youth that can't remain under the surface forever. And, you know, one of the things I think that the film highlights is that art, particularly classical music as one example, can bring people together from disparate places and backgrounds in a way that few other things can, but there's still much work to do then. It's not as simple as bringing them together. There's a lot that has to be worked through and worked out, and it is a really interesting look at the Israel-Palestine conflict in a way that I had never seen before. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, a worthy start to the festival. I think. Ah, that sounds very good. Yeah, I'm familiar with the work of the orchestra and uh, everything else aside, it's a good orchestra. Indeed, indeed. Yes, and in fact, um, everyone who attends the festival gets a program. It's a virtual program, it's a PDF. And we'll have more about the films. And one of the things we do is link to the actual orchestra's page and some YouTube performances that they've done so people can kind of get a sense of what the, the real orchestra is like. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, what else have we got uh, coming up here? Oh, gosh. Well, I'll, I'll tell you two of my favorites. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is The Crossing. This is the Norwegian film about a brother and a sister, two young kids, I'd say 10-ish, 9, 10, 11, whose parents are part of the Norwegian resistance against the Nazi regime. And I don't want to give too much away, but suffice it to say that at a certain point, the parents are apprehended and the kids have to kind of pick up where their parents left off in terms of that resistance work. And what's unusual about this film for our festival is that it truly is family friendly. I think that kids around the ages of the children who are the protagonists it's appropriate for. And uh, so, uh, you know, there are many films we show that simply either wouldn't be relevant or interesting to kids or are not appropriate for them. And this one really is. It's again, I mean, it's about the Holocaust. It's about World War II and, and all of the things that go along with that. But it's from such a different angle. A lot of people have no idea what Norway's involvement was in terms of um, World War II and that there was a Norwegian resistance that you know, was very active in trying to save Jewish residents and get them to a neutral country. So uh, well worth seeing. Very well done. Now, for those who would like to partake in the festival, what's the door in since it's a virtual door? Right. I would say that um, right now, if you go to sajfs.org, that is the Jewish Family Services website. And I should say, JFS is the annual organizer of the festival. It's the organization that puts it on. If you go there, at the very beginning, you'll see sort of a, a door into the festival page. And so you'll be able to buy tickets or learn more about the films or do whatever you want from there. I could give you longer uh, internet addresses, but they wouldn't translate very well on the radio. So sajfs.org. Sometimes simple is, is really the way to go. Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering... If those who partake in the festival, is there anything specific that you hope they will carry away with them? Is there anything that will, I don't want to say make them different. Let's just hmm. stick with, is there something uh, substantial that you would like for them to carry away with them from this experience? Well, um, you know, I think that uh, one of the main sort of messages or ideas that we want to get across is expressed in our theme, which is hope in a broken world. 
This theme came about because many of the members of our selection committee said, please, we need something in such a difficult time. We need something that brings some uplift, some hope. And, you know, the films in the festival vary greatly in terms of their tone and mood, but we really wanted to express the importance of resisting forces that seek to oppress or persecute and focusing on finding where the hope is, even in very challenging, very difficult situations. And that cuts across the festival. The darkest, the bleakest film in the festival, Incitement, is a historical drama about the radicalization of the Israeli man who eventually ended up assassinating uh, the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And um, so it seems as though it doesn't relate as clearly to the theme as the other films. But when I rewatched it recently, I saw the peace movement in Israel as embodied by Rabin was something fueled by hope. And what the eventual assassin of Rabin brings is um, a brokenness that really kind of cuts that hope short. And so it's sort of the other side of the looking glass, how hope can be at least uh, postponed, if not uh, extinguished, by forces that are malignant, I guess. The festival has the full range all the way from hope to despair, and I, I really hope that people are able to experience that as they watch. The 17th annual Spokane Jewish Cultural Film Festival, the theme, Hope in a Broken World, March the 3rd through the 12th. And if you want more information about it, again, the website to start is sajfs.org, and you can go on from there. And uh, I want to deeply thank Neil Schindler, who is co-director of the festival, for coming and uh, sharing his ideas and sharing a, a bit of a tour of the film festival with us. Well, thank you, Jim. It was a wonderful to be here. Judas and the Black Messiah is a realistic character study of two real-life historical figures, says Dan Webster in this review. Movies based on real-life figures typically have a couple of problems. The first and maybe most important involves the liberties that filmmakers so often take with facts the reason they always cite is that movies, unlike real life, require more, quote, dramatic effect, unquote. The result is often at odds with reality and sometimes appallingly so. In the 2000 movie U-571, for example, Americans are given credit for capturing the German Enigma code device and hastening the end of World War II. In actuality, the code already had been broken by a team of British and Polish mathematicians. Another example, released that same year, is the film Gladiator, in which a team of screenwriters fictionalized beyond belief Joaquin Phoenix's character of the real-life Roman emperor Commodus. And let's not even get started on the absurd departures from common knowledge that both Michael Bay and Oliver Stone are famous for in their respective movies Pearl Harbor and JFK. Such alterations of fact lead directly to the second problem involving biopics. The sense of unreality associated with real-life historical figures that all too often cast them as something other than living, breathing human beings. In his film Judas and the Black Messiah, co-screenwriter and director Shaka King does manipulate reality. In telling the story of Fred Hampton, the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, and William O'Neill, the man who betrayed Hampton, King by necessity invents dialogue and he changes some of the actual historical timeline, streamlining events to make for a smoother narrative. But despite the alterations, the film he ended up making feels strikingly real. 
One obvious change involves the actors that King casts in his film's two central roles, both Daniel Kaluuya, who plays Hampton, and Lakeith Stanfield, who plays O'Neill, are close to a decade older than their real-life counterparts, yet both are so talented, so immersed in their performances, that the age difference is nigh unnoticeable, at least to those of us who didn't know either one personally. You may be familiar with Kaluuya from his recent performances in such films as Jordan Peele's 2017 horror study, Get Out, or Steve McQueen's 2018 crime flick, Widows. Stanfield, too, appeared in Get Out, though he had a larger role in Donald Glover's FX series Atlanta and in the 2019 mystery feature Knives Out. In Judas and the Black Messiah, Kaluuya's Hampton is the so-called Black Messiah of the film's title. And while he hardly lives up to that title, a term coined by FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, played here by a nearly unrecognizable Martin Sheen, Hampton does emerge as a charismatic revolutionary leader. He can speak off the cuff, articulating his arguments in a way that appeals, ultimately, to a rainbow coalition of the city's social activists, black, brown, and white, but mostly black, even those who belong to rival groups. Even so, in King's movie, Hampton isn't a superhero, a strong, capable leader, yes, but one who has doubts, vulnerabilities that get pointed out to him by, and that he's willing to accept from, the young volunteer Deborah Johnson, played by Dominique Fishback. And though the burgeoning relationship between the two adds a romantic twist to the film, it never feels obligatory. The other secondary relationship the King documents is between O'Neill and the FBI agent who recruits him, played by Jesse Plemons. Caught between going to jail for car theft and impersonating a federal agent or becoming a snitch, O'Neill agrees to the latter. And it's a measure of Stanfield's acting skill that we never know what his actual feelings are, except for the obvious fear that would assail anyone when trying desperately to escape a trap not to mention his attempts, despite his fear, to glean everything he possibly can from the deal. For his part, director King manages also to play two roles. One is of a socially conscious filmmaker, intent on portraying the issues of the time that still obviously reverberate to this day. The other is that of an action filmmaker who is able, even when we know what's going to happen, to create a sense of riveting tension. Case in point, a scene where O'Neill is forced to hotwire a car at gunpoint. Ultimately, how you react to Judas and the Black Messiah may depend on how much you can relate to the struggle felt by the characters King introduces you to. Some of us lived through that era, and we have our own memories, shaped as they were both by now-discredited FBI accusations and emotionally charged headline news. Recognizing larger truths is at least one sign of maturity. Yet what King has put on the screen carries undeniable power. While it may not be factual to a fault, it certainly feels as if it is. And I'm not saying that just for mm, dramatic effect. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Dan Webster. Movies 101 host Dan Webster writes about movies and more for Spokane7.com. Movies 101 airs Friday evenings at 6.30 on KPBX, and podcasts from spokanepublicradio.org, just like this program, Northwest Arts Review. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. 
Help today came from Chris Massini. We're grateful as well for the contributions of Dr. Anu Taranath, Neil Schindler, and Dan Webster. Taking us out is the EWU Wind Ensemble, circa 2000, led by Patrick Winters, part of the university's Student Musicians Millennium CD. Join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio.